Good morning, church. Come on in and find your seat, please, if you would. And as you get to your seats, please turn in your Bible to Genesis chapter 6. And if you're able, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Today's reading is from Genesis chapter 6, verses 9 through 22. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you are to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female, of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray together. Lord, I ask that your spirit would come and be here with us this morning as we open your word. Please come and teach us. Please keep us from any error. Um, we ask that you would show us something new about your character and about the world that you have made. Be honored through your word, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so we are back in the book of Genesis this morning. And um, as you remember, I hope, our series is called Right from the Start. And one way to think about going right back to the start is to see that these first chapters in Genesis are the foundation stones on which the world is built. You know, a foundation stone sets the direction for the structure that's built on top of it. And everything references off of the foundation stone. So if there's a flaw in the foundation stone, the entire structure is flawed. These foundation stones in Genesis are great truths, like God made the world. God made man, male and female. Man sinned and death entered the world. You can't understand the world without having these foundation stones in place. If one of the stones is broken, then the entire structure crumbles. So the Great Flood is another one of these foundation stones. You can't understand the world rightly without the flood. Along with the rest of Genesis, the flood explains how the world came to be the way that it is. In the case of the flood, that's actually true in a very physical sense, right? Why does the world look the way that it does whenever we study its features? Well, the flood answers that question. But it's also true that you can't understand human history without having this stone in place. These foundation stones in Genesis, they show you what kind of world we live in. They set up patterns that show up over and over again throughout the scriptures and throughout creation. Patterns like light and darkness, male and female, work and rest, garden and city. And the flood account also sets up a pattern that's at the very heart of our Christian faith and of creation itself. That's the pattern of death and resurrection. The flood is the prototype death and resurrection story. It's a story of death as God's judgment against sin and resurrection as a gift of his sovereign kindness. 
And that pattern echoes throughout the rest of history and finds its fullest expression, of course, in the death and resurrection of Jesus. So Jesus is on everyone's mind right now for good reason, right? We're still in the Christmas tide season. Today is the seventh day of Christmas, if you're counting. Uh, seven swans of swimming, I think is right. Um, but it's New Year's Eve, right? It's a time of celebration and of new beginnings. So it might seem out of place for us to stop and think about the great flood. But I hope by the end you'll see that it's not at all out of place. The flood account is a sobering story for sure. But it's also a story of new beginnings. And it's a story that points our mind to Christ. And not just in the general way that everything in the Bible points our mind to Christ. But some, some very specific and intentional ways it points us to Christ. In that sense, it's a, for, it's a story filled with hope. So there are a hundred different legitimate ways that you could approach the flood text. It's so rich with meaning. If you pull any one string in the text, it just keeps coming. Um, but I think the text itself presents this as the main point of the story. At its heart, the flood is a story of judgment against sin and God's grace to save his people through judgment and to raise them up as a new creation. And just below the surface, we'll see that this salvation happens through the promised serpent crusher who comes to reverse the curse of sin and death. It's a story about the death and resurrection of the world. In the flood, God destroyed everything that he made. God killed everyone on earth except for one man and his family as a judgment against sin. But through that man and his family, God preserved life. He remade the world, and he promised blessings to humanity. Behold the kindness and the severity of God. So if we were to break the story up into parts, we might do it like this. First, corruption on the earth. Then God's command and Noah's obedience. Then the flood itself. And finally, God's promise. So first, let's consider the problem. Genesis chapter 2, of course, first laid the foundation stone that the consequence of sin is death. You know, God told Adam, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And we saw the death of Abel at the hands of his brother. And a number of deaths in chapter 5 are sort of matter-of-factly recounted in the genealogy there. But none of these deaths fully demonstrate the problem that sin creates. The flood is where we really learn the implications of sin. The flood is that great foundational demonstration of the truth that the consequence of sin is death. So the first section in chapter 6 sort of sets the stage for what follows. See, mankind in the garden was given the, the command to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And the genealogy in chapter 5 shows us that they did just that. This might be kind of surprising to you. Um, if we just add up the years in the genealogy in chapter 5, we find that about 1,600 years have passed from the time of Adam to Noah. And if you just make some reasonable guesses about the size of the average family, um, you find that there are probably over a billion people on the earth at this time. So now, as man multiplied and filled the earth, what should have filled the earth with him was the glory of God. Instead, we find that what man had filled the earth with was violence and corruption. In chapter 1, we saw, God saw the earth, and behold, it was very good. But now, in chapter 6, verse 12, we see that God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted its way on the earth. So if we back up to verse 1 in chapter 6, Moses gives us some of the details, though they are a bit mysterious. He says this, When man began to multiply on the face of the land, and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw that the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward. When the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them, these were the mighty men of old, the men of renown. So these first few verses in chapter 6 are deeply weird. Um, <laughs> almost every verse presents us with some sort of mysterious string that we could pull at. You know, who are the sons of God? Who are the Nephilim? What does it mean that his days shall be 120 years? 
we have to avoid the temptation to linger here. Um, there are two main schools of thought on this passage, and they're both plausible to me, so I'll mention them both to you. Um, the first is that the sons of God here are the descendants of Seth, the godly descendants of Seth. So we've seen in recent weeks, right, the, the theme of the seed of the serpent contrasted with the seed of the woman. In chapter 4, the line of Cain is connected to the seed of the serpent. You remember that. And Seth is presented with hope as the godly seed of the woman. You know, perhaps he's the one who will reverse the curse of sin and death. And chapter 5 follows the lineage of Seth all the way down to Noah. And then we get to the flood story where everything has apparently gone wrong. And the natural question is, well, what happened to the godly line of Seth? And so if you follow this reading, then chapter 6 gives us the answer. The faithful descendants of Seth committed the sin of intermarrying with the pagan cultures around them, and that's how things went off the rail. Sons of God is a term that is sometimes used in the Bible to describe God's people. So in this reading, the sons of God, meaning the descendants of Seth, intermarried with the daughters of man, meaning the descendants of Cain, and were corrupted as a result. So that's one option. The other option sounds much stranger, but it's actually been the majority position in the history of the church. And that is that the sons of God are actually fallen angels who've taken on human form and intermarried with human women. Angels are also sometimes called sons of God in the Bible. And the main thing that this argument has going for it is that it actually seems to be what the Apostle Peter thought, um, and Jude as well. So we don't have time to go there now, but if you look at 2 Peter 2, 4 through 7, and Jude 6 and 7, you'll see what I mean. So just jot those down and look them up later if you're curious. 2 Peter 2, 4 through 7, and Jude 6 and 7. I actually lean towards the fallen angels reading, but as I said, they're both plausible. In any case, we can say for sure that the sin being committed is the sin of a forbidden marriage. The sons of God saw that the daughters of man were good, and they took them as wives. What does that remind you of? They saw that something was good, and they took it. Yeah, that sounds like Eve in the garden, doesn't it? And that's what we're supposed to think. This is the first of many connections between the flood story and the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2. So this is bad, right? The sons of God, whoever they are, they're taking something that they're not supposed to have. It's a forbidden union, and that's something that God has always taken very seriously. Then in verse 3, the Lord said, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His days shall be 120 years. I understand this as God telling Noah how much time is going to pass before the flood happens. So if we look to Peter again in 1 Peter 3, he speaks of this as a time when God's patience waited while the ark was being prepared. So I think God tells Noah that there will be 120 years for man to repent from his wickedness before the disaster strikes. This is another foundation stone being laid. While God does not let sin go unpunished, he is patient with man. The book of Numbers says that the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. So this, this will be a theme throughout the rest of history, right? Paul speaks in Romans 3 about God's divine forbearance. God is patient with us. And here in Genesis 6 is perhaps the first example in Scripture of the patience of God. So the offspring of this forbidden union are these strange beings called the Nephilim. The Nephilim show up later in Numbers when Israel goes into Canaan, and they're described there as giants. Um, these, these Nephilim, these, these giants with perhaps even angelic blood in their veins are almost too incredible to believe. Can it really be true that fallen angels took on a fleshly form and intermarried with human women, creating a race of giants on the earth? If you prefer the line of Seth reading, that's fine. Lots of godly people do. But don't reject the fallen angel's view because you think it sounds crazy or because that kind of thing doesn't happen in real life. Um, we heard from Hamlet two weeks ago in the sermon. I'll quote him again. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your philosophy. And if the idea of fallen angels walking around on the earth is too much for you, then you'd better buckle up because it doesn't get any less incredible as we go through this story and through the rest of your Bible. This is another foundation stone, and it seems particularly important in our materialist age. This world is a deeply strange and spiritual place. Make sure that you have a category for that. You won't be able to understand your Bible or the world that you live in if you don't have that stone in place.
But the strangeness of the Nephilim is not the point of this passage. The point is what follows. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So the after effects of this forbidden union apparently spread across the whole earth. The wickedness of man was great on the earth, and every intention of his thoughts was only evil continually. I don't think we're meant to read that as a hyperbole. We'll see in a minute that there's apparently only one exception to that description of humanity. This is the condition of fallen man. This is what sin does in the human heart. It infects it like a cancer, and it spreads to the point where no part of us is uninfected. It's as true now as it was then, and as true as it has been since the moment when Adam ate the fruit. Then we see in verse 6, And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. There are mysteries in these verses as well, but there's nothing mysterious about the message. Perhaps when you hear this, your first thought is, well, that doesn't mean what it sounds like it means, right? God doesn't really regret. God isn't really grieved. And it's true that God does not grieve or regret in the way that man does. God doesn't make mistakes, and he doesn't change his mind. But God descends to communicate with us using language that we can understand. And God's communicating something to us here, and we need to hear what he's saying. Don't explain this away to the point where it no longer startles you. Moses knew that the I Am who appeared to him on Mount Sinai was not a man that he should change. Moses himself wrote, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. So God could have just said, you know, I am opposed to the wickedness of man. But that's not what he said. God said, I am sorry that I have made them. That's how much God hates sin. None of us can peer into the being of God and say exactly what that means. But understand what God wants us to hear. What's the foundation stone that's being laid? God hates sin. It is completely contrary to his being. It's repulsive to him. And if you're shocked by the idea that the timeless God of the universe could ever regret something, then let the force of that shock be directed toward this thought. How could the sinless God of the universe ever forgive the sins of man? How could he forgive my sins? It's a shocking thought because sin is truly terrible and God is truly holy. And verse 7 says, So the Lord said, I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. You know, to, to blot something out means just erase it completely as if it never existed. The first lesson of the flood story is that God is so holy and sin is so terrible that God justly and rightly wiped out every man, woman, and child that he created from the face of the earth. Every man and animal, everything that he had made, he killed them all as a righteous judgment against sin. Except, not all. Verse 8 says, But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. That's the second lesson of the story. Noah found favor. The word means grace. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah is a stark contrast to the world around him. He and his family are the lone exception to the corruption that filled the earth, and he is the lone recipient of God's favor. Verse 9 says that Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Blameless, of course, doesn't mean sinless, but Noah was a faithful man of God. He was not guilty of the violence and corruption that had filled the earth. He was a righteous man. It even says that Noah walked with God. That is high praise indeed. Only Enoch was said to have walked with God. And remember, Enoch didn't even taste death. So Noah is, of course, a very great hero of the Christian faith. And the way that Noah is presented in this story is filled with meaning. Remember that from the moment that Adam sinned and God promised that the seed of the woman would one day crush the head of the serpent and undo the curse of sin, God's people were on the lookout for that promised deliverer. And throughout the Bible, the various heroes of the faith are presented to us with that question in mind. Is this the one? 
It started with the birth of Seth at the end of chapter 4, who Eve hoped would be the new Adam and would reverse the curse. But it was clear that Seth was not the one. Noah is the next hope for humanity. Noah is a new Adam. And Noah is presented to us with that same question. Is he the one? Noah's name means rest. And if you go back to the end of chapter 5, when Noah was born, we're told that his father named him Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the pain of the toil of our hands. Do you hear those echoes of the curse? So Noah is a new Adam, and the question is held out throughout the story. Is he the one? By the end of the story, we'll know the answer. Noah is a faithful man, but he's not the one. He points to another still to come. The next section in the story recounts two extended speeches by God to Noah, giving Noah some detailed instructions. So in verse 13, God announces his intentions to Noah. He says, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And then he tells Noah what to do. He says, make for yourself an ark of gopher wood, make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch, this is how you are to make it. And then he tells them, the ark should be 450 feet long, 75 feet wide, and 45 feet tall. It's a massive vessel. He says it should have a roof, it should have three decks, and a door in its side. And then verse 17, for behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. So, now we see God's intentions laid out for Noah. God is going to destroy all life on the earth because the earth is filled with violence through them. And he's going to do it by means of a great flood. But God intends to save Noah and his family from the flood. And not only will he save Noah and his family, but he also intends to preserve his creation as well. He will preserve life on the earth by bringing two of every kind of animal into the ark. God will do this thing, and he'll do it by means of this Herculean task that he's giving Noah to do. And verse 22 simply says, Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. It's truly mind-boggling if you stop and think about how much work is implied in that simple sentence, he did all that God commanded him. As I understand it, there was something like 70 years that passed between the time when God gave Noah the command to build the ark and when the floodwaters came. So the implication is that that's how long it took Noah to build the ark. And actually, 70 years sounds about right to me. We aren't told anything about how he did it. You know, presumably he had the help of his sons and their wives, but any of us who have ever built anything are just blown away by the thought, right? The scale of the task is truly, truly incredible. But more than the physical challenge, just consider what a tremendous act of faith it was. So, you know, the joke goes, how do you eat an elephant? And the answer is one bite at a time. Well, how do you build an ark? It's one board at a time, day after day for 70 years. How many times must Noah have been tempted to question the sanity of what he was doing. Consider how much opposition he must have faced from violent mockers. The author of Hebrews says that this Herculean task of obedience was fundamentally an act of faith. He says, by faith, Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this, he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So the main point of the flood story is not Noah's example to us, but Noah is very much an example to us. You and I are also called to build. You know, over the years, theologians have drawn an analogy between the ark and the church. There's a real sense in which the church of God is an ark that carries us safely through the floodwaters of this world. And God is the great builder and architect of his church, but he builds it by means of the day-by-day, week-by-week, year-by-year building that he's given us to do. We build in faith that God will build his church to the saving of the world, just as he did through Noah.
Then we go to the beginning of chapter 7. See, 70 years have passed since the first command was given, and now we see the second command that God gave to Noah. The time has come for Noah and the animals to go into the ark. Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of the earth. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights, and every living thing that I have made I will blot out from the face of the ground. And then, once again, it simply says, And Noah did all that the Lord commanded him. Now, at this point, the story slows way down, and we're given this very dramatic recounting of the boarding of the ark. It's told in a way that's befitting of one of the most significant events in human history, which is exactly what this is. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem and Ham and Japheth and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life. And those that entered, male and female, of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Notice a couple of things. First, you can hear the echoes again, can't you, of Genesis 1. According to its kind, according to its kind. The full roll call is given. Man, beasts, livestock, creeping things, and birds. All of creation is preserved, but only by being on the ark. Also notice that striking detail, and the Lord shut him in. Noah is a faithful, obedient man of God, but he's not the hero of this story. God is the hero of this story. And I don't mean that in just a trivial theological sense. The story's written that way. Have you ever noticed that throughout the entire flood account, Noah doesn't say a single word? He never speaks. We don't know what he was thinking. We don't know what he was feeling. He simply obeys. Meanwhile, God is the one who does all of the talking. We're told what he was thinking, what he was feeling. He has all of the action. God is the main character of this story. This is a story about God and this incredible thing that he did. Noah is an obedient servant, and he is the object of God's grace. But God is the judge and savior of the world. And to reinforce that, we're told, and the Lord shut him in. The ark represented the only hope of escape from God's holy wrath. This detail is also a reminder that while God is patient and he does provide a door, a way to escape his judgment, eventually he shuts the door. Jesus said, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Jesus is the only door by which we may escape the waters of God's judgment because he experienced them on our behalf if we come to him in faith. So after waiting patiently for 120 years, God shut the door to the ark, and all of humanity's fate was sealed. Then the floodwaters came. Verse 11, In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened. And rain fell upon the earth 40 days and 40 nights. As if to underscore the fact that we're talking about real history here and not just a myth, Moses tells us the exact day in history when the floodwaters came. And they came violently. Don't picture this as just a long, steady rain. It was much more violent than that. The fountains of the great deep burst forth. Even now, there are oceans of water buried underneath the earth. And in a moment, God opened up the fountains of the deep and all that water burst forth. He says, the windows of the heavens were opened. That could just be a dramatic way of saying that a lot of rain fell. Um, I suspect it might mean more than that. Maybe, maybe some of you are familiar with the idea, what's called the canopy theory, which is just this idea that before the flood, that the earth was covered by uh, um, 
a canopy of vaporous water that created like a greenhouse effect on the earth. It comes from the language of Genesis 1, where it says that God separated the waters that were above from the waters that were below. Not to get into that, I think there's something to it, though. And if so, then this was the moment when that canopy came pouring down and an ocean of water fell to the earth. Whatever the details, it was total destruction. Verse 17 begins the climax of the story, and it's one of the most dramatic passages in the Bible. It describes the death of the world. The flood continued 40 days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. Man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens, they were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. Behold the severity of God. Behold the holiness of God. God judges the world with righteousness, as the Psalms say. It's an awe-inspiring scene. It was nothing less than the total unmaking of the world, the death of creation. Moses actually uses language that suggests that we should think of this as a decreation. It's creation in reverse. Notice that recurring phrase, the waters increased. The waters prevailed and increased greatly. The waters prevailed, the waters prevailed. Man was told to multiply and fill the earth and have dominion over it. But now it's the waters that have prevailed and blotted man out from the earth. In verse 23, he blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground. And then Moa lists them in reverse order in which they were created. It says man, animals, creeping things, and birds that were blotted out from the earth. And finally, the waters have prevailed so mightily on the earth that we're all the way back to where we started in Genesis 1. Verse 2, the waters cover the face of the earth. The earth is without form and void. In chapter 8, verse 2, we even see that God made a wind to blow over the earth, and our minds are called back to the Spirit of God that hovered over the face of the waters at the beginning of creation. So it was done. The waters of God's judgment covered the earth and wiped out every living thing that he had made. And it's crucial to remember that God was absolutely good and right in what he did. The consequence of sin is death. It's one of the great foundation stones that this world is built on. And if this were a story about any of the other so-called gods of the ancient world, that might be the end of it. Simply a story of offense committed and punishment given. But that's not how this story ends. The most important sentence in the whole account is verse 1 of chapter 8. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. The true story is not merely a story of judgment against sin, but also of grace. Not just death, but a resurrection. Not just decreation, but a recreation as well. This Beautiful word about God's grace to Noah and those with him on the ark is very literally the center of this story. We're going to get a little nerdy for a minute. Um, this kind of thing's really fun. So the flood story has a very intentional structure to it. Um, it's actually a very common structure in the Bible. You see it everywhere. It's called a chiasm. So a chiasm, what it does is it builds towards a central idea and then mirrors itself and echoes in reverse order. Um, so the word chiasm comes from the Greek letter chi, which is an X. So just think of an X uh, where you move towards the center and then back out in reverse order. And the idea at the center is the one that's being highlighted. Right? That's how a chiasm works. So in this story, for example, at the beginning, God resolves to destroy all mankind. And at the end, he resolves never to destroy mankind again. So those two ideas pair together, and that's one level of the chiasm. So then you move in one layer, and you've got Noah builds an ark, 
And then in the second half of the story, Noah builds an altar. So those two ideas are paired together, and that's another layer of the chiasm. Um, you move in again, and the flood beginning corresponds with the earth drying out. Move in again, the floodwaters rise. That pairs with the floodwaters receding. You get the idea. That's how a chiasm works. And the whole flood story is structured this way. And the central idea in this whole story is this sentence. God remembered Noah. Moses wrote the story in a way to draw attention to that sentence. Yes, absolutely the flood is a story about God's judgment of sin. But the text suggests that this is the most important part of the story. God remembered Noah. The word remembered, obviously, doesn't mean that God had forgotten about Noah, right? It means that at the height of God's righteous judgment of sin, God thought about Noah and had favor on him. And in Scripture, when God remembers, he acts. Again, God made a wind to blow over the earth, and we're reminded of the Spirit of God that hovered over the face of the waters at the beginning of the first creation. So also begins the recreation of the world, the resurrection of creation. It's interesting and important to see how the receding floodwaters in chapter 8 actually parallel the creation account in Genesis chapter 1. So first, the wind blowing over the water kind of harkens back to day one of creation. Then in verse 2, the fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. That echoes the separation of the waters above from the waters below on day two. Then as the waters recede and are gathered together, the dry land appears just as it did on day three. Then we have that beautiful scene with Noah and the dove where three times he sends out the dove. Uh, the first two times the dove comes back to him, but the third time the dove doesn't return, so he knows that the earth is dried out. And that reminds us of day five when God said, let birds fly above the earth. And then finally, God commands Noah and the animals to come out of the ark, which echoes day six of creation. God does this kind of thing in the Bible. There's there are many things that could be said about this passage, but God wants us to see that what's happening here is a new creation, a resurrected creation. That's the stone that's being laid, and it is beautiful. So again, because this is history, we're told the exact day when Noah and the animals left the ark. Verse 13 says, In the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried off from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So the new creation received the same blessing and the same command as the first. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. So Noah went out, verse 18, and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him. Every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families from the ark. That's the story of the death and resurrection of the world. And just as God was good and right in dealing out death to the world as the consequence of sin, he was also good and right and kind in giving the world new life. Death is never the end of the story with God. Let's pause for a brief digression here before we move on. There's a very great deal of work that has gone into trying to understand like from a scientific and geological standpoint whether what we read here in these chapters in Genesis actually happened. You know, where did all the water and the flood come from? And then where did it go? You know, could an ark really hold all the animals that would have been needed? And, or does the geological record match what's described here? And that's a worthwhile discussion. Um, obviously, I think there are good answers to all of those questions. And I think it can be encouraging as a Christian to be familiar with some of those answers. There are lots of good books and resources out there. There are some bad ones as well. Um, that address these questions. But as you think about that and perhaps engage in that debate with other people, just a couple of things to remember. First, don't forget that just as the creation week was fundamentally a week of miracles, the flood was also a miracle of God. 
You know, we can talk about the science of the flood all day long, but don't fall into the trap of looking for explanations of the flood that will be satisfactory to an unbeliever. It's a fruitless endeavor. Remember that God is the lead actor in this story. So if you're looking for a respectable middle way that that treats the flood as real history, but that doesn't have the active, all-powerful hand of God at the center of it, um, you won't find it. And you'll end up doing some bad theology and some bad science. Um, You know, it's good to look for evidence of the flood in nature, but just remember that the flood was a supernatural act of God. And secondly, remember that there's no such thing as neutrality. If you want to talk about myths, the greatest myth of all is the myth of neutrality. What I mean is that everyone, and there are no exceptions, everyone looks at the world either through eyes of faith or unbelief. We all come to these questions having already decided in our hearts that either God exists and he is who he says he is, or that he does not exist and cannot be considered in the search for our, uh, an explanation for the way that things are. So there's no such thing as a neutral pursuit of science. You know, as Christians who are interested in science, we can look at the earth and we can say, yeah, that looks more or less as I would expect it to look, um, given what the Bible says. Or we can say, hmm, well, that's actually not exactly what I expected, um, but I know that God's word is true, so let's think about what we might have gotten wrong. We can do that. But the unbelieving scientist looks at the world and says, I know that God had nothing to do with this, and so they have to construct a story that leaves him out. And so the work of apologetics is to look at their story and compare it to ours and ask questions like, which story better explains the world? Um, But there is no neutrality. Remember that. And because it's a foundation stone, in some ways the most important thing that you can say about the flood is that it actually happened. You can't build on an imaginary foundation. If the flood is just a children's story, then God did not actually destroy the earth and kill everyone in it because of the wickedness of sin. If it's just a story, then maybe sin isn't bad enough to actually deserve death, real physical death, in which case maybe Jesus didn't have to come and die in our place. But if God really did kill every man, woman, and child on earth except for one man and his family because of sin, then sin really is that terrible. And if it's just a story, then perhaps there's no hope of resurrection If Genesis is just a myth, then the whole Bible's a myth, and Jesus wasn't actually raised from the dead. In that case, there's no hope for life after death for you and I. Death comes to us all, and that's the end. But if God really did preserve his people through judgment and recreate the world through them, then there really is a hope for resurrection for you and I as well. So the most important thing you can say about the flood is that it really happened. This is no metaphor. The flood does set the pattern. After this, water becomes a metaphor and a symbol of God's judgment. You see that in places like Isaiah and in the Psalms. The pattern that was set by the flood shows up over and over again in history. Israel at the Red Sea comes to mind. Right There also, the waters of God's judgment wipe out his enemies, but his people are brought safely through. But all of that symbolism points back to the flood. Let's pick up at the end of chapter 8 and finish the story. Let's look at God's promise to Noah and to humanity. So the first thing Noah did after he left the ark was to build an altar and offer sacrifices to God. Verse 21. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intentions of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Daniel is going to cover chapter 9 and God's covenant with Noah in detail next week. So I just want us to consider a couple of things before we go. We've seen the severity and the holiness of God on display. Now consider his kindness. Picture the scene. In front of the altar, Noah stood before God as a new Adam, representing all of humanity. He made a sacrifice to God, and God responded to him with favor. And then God made a promise. I will never again curse the ground because of man. 
Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. And then Noah received the blessing that Adam received. Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This all sounds pretty promising. Maybe, maybe Noah is the one after all. The one who's brought rest, relief from the curse. But there's a problem hinted at even here. God said, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. So apparently man's nature hasn't changed after the flood. Sin still remains. This suggests that God's promise is not given because the situation's been resolved, but rather it's another example of his patience and forbearance. And any illusions that Noah was the promised serpent crusher are quickly dashed. If we skip ahead to the end of chapter 9, we see that the new creation actually experiences a fall, just like the first creation did. It's striking. So Noah, if you remember the story, Noah planted a vineyard. In the course of time, he drank wine, and he became drunk in his tent. And then his son Ham went into his tent and saw the nakedness of his father. And then, then Ham shamed Noah by telling his brothers about it. His brothers then discreetly covered their father, and then Noah awoke, and he realized what Ham had done. Then Noah cursed Ham's son, Canaan. So there are some strange things about that story also, but I think we're meant to see that as a fall of the new creation. It echoes the original creation in some really interesting ways. There's, there's a garden, there's fruit, there's nakedness and covering and shame, and it all ends in a curse. So sin remains. Noah is not the one. Now, if you're an angel looking down on this scene from heaven, you might see this and say, hang on a minute, how can that be? If the consequence of sin is death, and man's nature is still sinful, and Noah's not the serpent crusher, then how can God promise that he'll never do this again? And the answer is clear. If Noah's not the one, there will have to be another. The foundation stone has been laid. Death, total destruction, is the righteous consequence of sin. And yet, death is not the end. God preserves a people through judgment, and he raises them up as a new creation. And if that's all true, then there will have to be another. And there was another, of course. The whole world celebrated his coming this week. Now, the surprising part of the story is that when the true serpent crusher came, he crushed the serpent and reversed the curse by actually experiencing death himself. He was not spared as Noah was. He experienced the waters of God's judgment. And the only way for us to be spared is to come in through the door and be united to him, such that his experience of the floodwaters counts on our behalf. The New Testament actually talks this way about Jesus, connecting the gospel to the flood. Jesus himself talked this way. Um, when James and John, his disciples, uh, asked whether they could sit at his right hand and left hand in glory, Jesus asked them rhetorically, speaking about his upcoming death, whether they could be baptized with the baptism with which he was baptized. It seems a bit strange, doesn't it, for Jesus to refer to his death as a baptism. But if you have the flood in the back of your mind then maybe you start to get some ideas about what he meant. Paul also, in 1 Corinthians, referred to Israel's passing through the Red Sea as a baptism. So what does baptism have to do with all of this? Well, Peter, once again, offers some help. Again, a mysterious passage, but let's look at what Peter says. In 1 Peter 3, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. That's great. That's just solid gospel stuff. But then, Peter's mind goes to the flood. He, he speaks somewhat mysteriously of the time when Christ went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through water. And then he says... That baptism, which corresponds to this, meaning corresponds to the flood, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, if we get too distracted by that jarring statement that baptism now saves you, then we'll miss Peter's point 
which is about the gospel. Peter says that baptism corresponds to the flood. I think we all know that baptism is a picture of death and resurrection, but not just any death. It's death through water. When we are baptized in faith into the body of Christ, we are united to him in his baptism, in his watery death, and in his resurrection. In baptism, we symbolically experience the floodwaters of God's judgment in Christ. And in baptism, we symbolically experience his resurrection. We are a new creation in him. So every time you witness a Christian baptism, I hope that just like Peter, a part of your mind goes back to the great flood and you are overcome with gratitude for what Christ has done for you. As with so many other things in life, it's not whether, but which. Not whether, but which. Each person will experience the floodwaters of God's judgment one way or another. You will either experience them yourself or in Christ. For those outside of Christ, when God shuts the door, the judgment will be as severe as it was on those souls who filled the earth with violence in the days of Noah. But for those of us in Christ who have received his gracious favor and gladly entrusted our safety to him, then we experience the floodwaters through him who plumbed them on our behalf. Christ went through those waters and he came out on the other side. And in him, so have you. You are a new creation in him. It's New Year's Eve. The passing of the old year and the coming of the new is just one more example of that death and resurrection theme that God seems to love so much. So, as the whole world celebrates tonight with lights and fireworks, be mindful of the foundation stone that it all rests on. Death and resurrection has been a theme from the very beginning. And we no longer fear death or judgment. And we have cause to celebrate because of the great gift of resurrected life that was given to us by Jesus Christ, our cornerstone. Amen? Please stand with me and let's pray. Father, thank you. Thank you for your grace to us in Jesus Christ. We confess that were it not for your grace, we would be just like those outside the ark, shaking our fists at you and cursing your name as the water rose around our feet. But you have been kind to us. You have remembered us, and you have not remembered our sin. Thank you that we are a new creation in Christ. So as we, as we go out into the world, teach us what it means to be a new creation. Use us to bring about your purpose for the world. Father, we are thankful and we are filled with joy because of what you have done for us in Christ. And it is in his precious name that we pray. Amen.